Well, I thought when I was scheduled to preach, I thought it's going to be low attendance Sunday. And those of you who found out, you still showed up. So, I mean, I I guess I'm here. Uh, My name's Jeff Oldham. I'm the executive pastor here at Melanie Park Church. We have four pastors. We have our youth pastor, which is Wills. Uh, We have our worship pastor, Brian. And then we have our teaching pastor, Todd. And I think Brian said this the first week, that, man, we are so so grateful to have a teaching pastor that teaches the God's word with accuracy, beauty, and a heart for us to know him better. So I'm so um, grateful to sit under God's teaching through Todd and our elders. Um, But every once in a while, I have to preach. And so here we go. All right. (laughs) So two weeks ago, we started a series called The Gospel Changes Everything. I think Man, what a great place to start a new year. In a crazy world we walk in, we need some good news. That's what the gospel says. Thank you, Tom. The gospel means good news to a broken world that needs him desperately. So what a great place to start 2023 by saying there's something that changes everything that all brokenness can be redeemed. Isn't that great news? Not just good news? I don't know the word for that. Gospel more? I don't know. I just made something up right there. Oh yeah, Amy said stay on script. So here we go. (laughs) Just as a summary though, uh, two weeks ago, Brian started off by reminding us of what the gospel is. It's planned for redemption through Jesus' death on the cross for forgiveness of sins. So that all who believed are redeemed to God. And that this gospel truth is changing us right now. Not just in the moment of my belief. And not that we're just waiting for a future hope in heaven. The gospel is sanctifying each one of us right now. Everyone in this room. And that's the beautiful thing. Needs the gospel on a daily basis. And then last week... Wills reminded us that this gospel, this good news, is under attack by internal and external forces. And these forces are working to try to remove us from the centrality of these gospel truths. So he went on to encourage us to remember um, to be steadfast, immovable, and always excelling in God's good work. That's the gospel at work in me to stand firm. This morning, we're going to look at how the gospel changes us corporately, communally, relationally. You see, Jesus' work on the cross starts to change everything in us, our desires, how we view the world, how we view our finances, our jobs, our future, our past. And this morning, we're exploring the gospel's power to change the view of how we interact with each other. And it's important. We have an overarching passage, a series passage. This isn't what I'm going to teach on this morning, but I think this is a good passage to kind of ground us in where we're going and where we've been for this series. It's in Philippians 1, verse 27. It says this, Only conduct yourselves 
And as always, those verses will be on the screens. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what Brian taught us two weeks ago. What is the gospel of Christ? What does it mean to walk in a, 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 a manner that's worthy of that? And then Paul goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That was Will's message, to stand firm, to be immovable, to excel in every good work in Christ. And then this morning, we're going to look at the last part of that verse, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. How do we do that collectively? So before we look into God's word, before we start moving through the gospel that changes everything, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. You didn't just leave us here on this earth to fend for ourselves. As a good God, you you entered into our world through your son Jesus to walk with us, to know us, to see us, to experience all that we on this earth experience so that you know. And so God, you came to save us through your son. And so, Lord, we just thank you. But as uh, we, we look at your word this morning, settle my heart, please. Just let me be one in you, that no word that comes from me is me. It is through the power of your Holy Spirit and the truths of your word that hearts are changed. So, Lord, guide us. We humbly wait for you to speak. Father, we pray this in the mighty and gentle name of Jesus. Amen. The guide this morning... I figured I'd use the Bible. So as a guide this morning (laughs) of how the gospel will change us, we're going to use a well-known Bible passage that describes a first century community and what that looked like. How did the gospel, as it intersected with their lives, look to them? And I think this passage will help us see the rhythms and practices of a community that are centered on the gospel. And how this community is incredibly and critically important to our lives as we look at it. So our passage is going to be in the book of Acts. And if you've walked in church very long, you probably knew where this was going. Starting in verse 42 in the chapter 2, 42. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts Acts 2. And we're going to be at the back end of that chapter starting in verse 42. And as we read this, I want you to try to visualize maybe what it looked like back then. Just kind of get a visual. It's always good to do that because visuals stick. So as I'm reading this, visualize it. In verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as I, I, I read that passage, and I've read it many times, I've heard excellent teaching on it, and probably most of you, if you've read this before, things go through your head, ideas, thoughts. You can visualize it. And maybe that's been your experience as well, is that as you read through this, you have a projection of what this is supposed to look like. What's funny about this, though, is that as I walk through this, these perceptions, these ideas really tell me about the condition of my heart. Let me, let me give you an example. When my heart is operating in the old self, when my operating is in my flesh, in my selfish nature, I look at this passage from a fairly cynical posture, and I think, that would never work. Had all things in common? I mean, there's no way that they have all things in common. I mean, that feels like utopian thinking. That's a fairly dangerous way to think. So in my flesh, I'm thinking, hmm, would that really work? Or selling possessions and belongings and distributing them to all who have need? Just bear with me. But in my old flesh, I think, that sounds a little bit like a hippy-dippy-trippy commune <laughs> of the 1960s. <laughs> peace, baby, peace. You know, <laughs> it, it just feels weird to me. Like, everybody in Melanie Park, if you don't live in the hood with us, if you see a sign out there that has a house for sale, Drive by it, and if you don't live here, start moving into Melanie Park. Let's get this thing done. It sounds just like a little strange. In my flesh, it sounds strange. In my spirit, I'm like, let's do this. I'm, so seriously, if you see a for sale sign, <laughs> let's do this thing. But when I'm operating in my old heart, when I don't trust God with everything that I am, I can easily fake community. I can fake unity. I can fake generosity. And the world's full of fake community. But at some point, that all falls apart because the consumer in me will be revealed. The false servant will be brought into light. You know how I know this? Because I've seen it. I've experienced it. And fortunately, unfortunately, I perpetuate it at times. And if you're honest with yourself, I think at times you do too. You've seen this happen. You've seen false community. And sometimes you're a part of perpetuating that. And you've also seen that it, when we run, out of, run after anything that we think is going to satisfy it other than him, it all falls apart. I mean, if you're truly honest with yourself, that's what happens. But we can see this gospel-centered community right here. In Acts 2, as we're reading, these, these people were somehow abundantly generous. They were striving for seemingly unwavering unity, and they were exhibiting alluring joy and fellowship. They had 
favor with all people. Although the Jewish people were and still are very family-oriented, this was a different type of community, radical even. They moved around together. They prayed together. They laughed together. They ate together. They existed in this loving, sacrificial, joy-filled family. Their faith life, their social life, and their work life were intertwined. This form of community was really appealing to the world around them. They had favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amazingly, this is the cool thing. Because if you're not sensing this right now, I don't know what to do. But amazingly, these type of communities exist today, even here at Melanie Park. And we just saw beautiful little children praising Jesus. It happens right here. And I believe the key to seeing uh, this, this beautiful community and participating in it, I believe this key is uh, to understand what makes these communities tick. Community doesn't save anyone. Jesus does. The first century community had to have a catalyst. So what happened? What started all of this? I mean, what happened that set in motion something so powerful that it compelled a group of people to completely reorient their lives, to change the way they lived individually and communally? What happened that even 2,000 years later, it continues to change the way we interact with each other? I think to answer this, we're going to have to back up just a little bit and go back into the front end of Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter of Acts 1 and 2. I'm going to summarize. So just follow along the best you can. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he reminded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1. So they went into Jerusalem because they're obedient followers. There were lots of people there because it was Shabbat the Feast of Weeks. And then the Holy Spirit arrives in the most amazing way. Think tongues of fire. (laughs) If you don't remember this story or you haven't read it before, in the first part of Acts chapter 2, go read it. It's called Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit arrives. And this was the gift that Jesus promised as all of his followers that they would receive, the manifestation of God. This is important to understand Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the manifestation of God. He is the voice of Jesus. He is the living God inside of us. For all who repent, all who trust, and all who believe in the good news. Now these Jesus followers, filled with the Spirit, were given the gift of speaking in other languages to communicate what was happening. They were miraculously spreading the good news, the gospel, in every language represented in Jerusalem at that time. If you've ever read that story, are you not amazed every time you read that? Yeah, the Holy Spirit comes and he's like, you can speak Spanish now. Wow, you can speak Arabic. Woo, you can speak Jive. No, that wasn't the language. And so you can speak any language that's going to reach anybody that you're speaking to. So Peter stands up in this huge crowd, and he presents the gospel. 
in a way that everyone that's around him can understand. And starting in verse 14, he references an Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus. He reminds them of the mighty works, miracles, wonders, and signs that Jesus performed while here on earth. And he's getting his message going. Peter explains that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is God's plan A for redemption, bringing all humankind to himself. And that Jesus' resurrection was proof of that plan. That's all in his preaching right there. He's preaching to these people in Jerusalem. And they're listening. And he showed them this truth through the prophetic words and prophecy of David. Spirit was moving, and the truth was on full display. And the Peter says this. Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, check this, whom you crucified. If I'm standing in the crowd, I'm like, ooh, ouch, that hurt a little. <laughs> I did that? I mean, what he was saying was revolutionary. He's saying this Jesus that was just crucified, you saw his wonders and works. If you didn't see it, you probably know somebody that did. And you crucified him. And that Jesus is both Lord. I love the use of this word. He's saying that's who we should be following. Not the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus. And Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's been promised to us since we were kids. Since we were... Your grandmother taught you that? Her grandmother taught her that. Their grandmothers taught them that. This is that Messiah. And we just crucified him. The beauty of it is that because he's crucified, freedom and uh, repentance and reconciliation to God is now an offer to you as well. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, it starts to penetrate their hearts. So what happens? Verse 37, let's pick it up. Now then they heard this and loved these words, and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. This wasn't a a baptism of water. This was a baptism into the name of Jesus by the Spirit for forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, before I go on too far, baptism by water is a wonderful thing. It's a symbol of our salvation. What he was talking about is a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And the gift of that is going to be the Holy Spirit. They had rejected the one that came to save them, and it cut them to their hearts. As soon as they heard the truth, There wasn't anything they could do to deny it. These truths were unfolding in front of them. They took hold at the heart level, and the inevitable response was to surrender to the life-changing power of the gospel. Now, 20 years ago, two guys entered my life. 
as my life is falling apart, talk about a broken world, as my life is falling apart, and if you've never heard my testimony before, let's go have coffee. I'm a walking miracle because of who he is. 20 years ago, two guys entered my life and they start speaking these truths deep into my heart. You talk about cutting to the heart. They said, you want to know how to live real life? There's only one way. God's plan A. And they gently and wisely and humbly walked with me with God's word. As I started seeing this, there was only one choice. Actually, there's two choices. I can reject it. We all can. Or we can say it's true. He is who he says he is. We believe in this truth that the gospel can change everything. And I watched it happen. Right in front of me, he started repairing me, restoring me. I started thinking differently, looking differently. He restored my marriage. It was gone. We were on the brink of divorce. That's not hyperbole. And he steps in and says, I can save that. I can redeem all things. So this isn't theory. This is experiential. We worship a a real God. In those days, I became a new creation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I was made new. If you're new to this church thing, if you heard the, the term reborn, I was born again. Literally. Amazing. Miraculously. That's what happened to those people in the book of Acts. So it's not really about the community itself. It's about what happened. This is the gospel, the good news. We are new creations. We don't have to be subject to the whims of our deceptive earthly hearts. He gave us a new heart. We don't have to be pulled and manipulated by the shifting values of our culture. He has reoriented our hearts around his values. Can you see how this would drastically transform how we relate to others? Instead of wanting to form our relationships based on what we want and need, we can now, by the work of the Holy Spirit, desire and serve others in relationships to consider the needs of others before our own. This is the key, I think. When we see our deepest needs are met by Jesus then we don't have to be approved of. We don't have to control. Please hear that. We don't have to fix people. We can encourage broken people to seek the one who can fix them. It's exactly what my friends did 20 years ago. Our selfish hearts continue to die in replacement to his selfless, selfless, gracious forgiving heart. In the book of Romans chapter 8, the attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the Spirit leads to life and peace. I'm a walking miracle that has experienced life and peace, but I also experienced that death. We begin to see that freedom and forgiveness 
That we don't have to hold on to resentments and hurts of the past because he forgave so much. We take on a heart of mercy instead of a heart of bitterness and anger. Sometimes it's a slow change. Sometimes it's overnight. But he is changing us when we trust him. The book of Colossians says, Bear one another, forgive one another. If any of you, any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as though the Lord has, as, as the Lord has forgave you. We've been forgiven so much. As we continue to die to ourselves because of the gospel, the attributes of this alluring, self-sacrificing, unified first century gospel community start to make sense. So now let's look back at that. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but just think back to what was read in that first century community. If we know God as creator and provider of all things, then selling my possessions becomes a cheerful act. Not just a obedience. If we understand that time is not our time, but is infinitely better at renegotiating and negotiating my schedule, then meeting with others is not a pain, it's a joy. We begin to desire to be around others, eat meals, and sing songs of praise. Now, I don't do this perfectly. None of us do. But Our attitude as we take it into each relationship will tell a lot about where our heart is. If Jesus is king, then our desire is to know more about him through biblical teaching. And our lives are individually and our lives are communally his. I have a great desire to hear God's word because of who he is in my heart. So the natural response in the spirit is that we serve and sacrifice for each other. We do this because Jesus modeled it. Matthew 20, 28 says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. One major problem is that I think we need to be reminded of this, and I don't know if you guys do. I'm just assuming, but I do. I have to be reminded of this regularly, often. We are new creations spiritually, but we walk around in forgetful flesh. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important, if not critical, to walk in community. Which brings up a fair question. Is living in biblical community even necessary? Is it just a function of the Christian life that is helpful, or is it necessary? For, and is it life-giving? Well, I would like to give you four reasons, four quick reasons why I think that walking in biblical gospel-centered community is not just needed, it is necessary. It is critical. First one is this, the triune community. God has existed in community from eternity in perfect union as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the beginning, he walked in community, has walked in community. And he imparts that to us. It seems fitting as we are being conformed to look more and more like Jesus that his relational attributes would become our attributes as well. The author, uh, Andrew Murray, says it really well. He says, we practice our love of God by loving one another. The fruit of our love for God is our love for one another. You want to see fruit in your life? 
Let's follow Jesus and start loving one another. And the quality of that fruit is evidence of the quality of our relationship with God at its root. He's been in community forever. And we take on his attributes. The natural outflow of that is to be in community. If we don't live in close community with others, it's impossible for us to love others as God has loved us. And as we lean into these realities of the triune God of the universe, we learn to love each other deeply. The second one is this. Gospel-centered community is a barrier against isolation. I am so sorry for those introverts in the room. (laughs) God is calling you into community. You're like, I don't want to leave my house. He's calling you into community. I like it right here. He's calling you into community. I'm comfortable in my sweats. He is calling us into community. Do you feel that? Some of you, you introverts are like, oh, I just started sweating. I just started sweating. Can someone turn on the AC? Gospel-centered community Helps us spend time with others. And I know there there are times that we spend time alone to focus, center our hearts on Jesus, catch our breath. But I'll tell you this, isolation in its worst form is tragic. Otherwise, uh, unless you're doing those things for the right reason, isolation is a treacherous territory. Because me being inside my own head is a bad place to be for a long time. I make a horrible echo chamber. I'm going to be honest with you. As smart and as talented and beautiful as you guys are, you do too. Stay inside your head for a little while, for a long time, without anyone interacting with you. At some point, we're going to go crazy. You see in Proverbs 18, it says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We need each other around us to make sure that we're not rationalizing or justifying some really poor and destructive decisions. I've met with several people in the last few weeks, and they're isolating in their lives. And as you can see, the fruit of it are some pretty poor and destructive decisions. Been there. God's word through God's spirit with God's people, this is a pathway to a God-honoring life. Number three, gospel-centered community is a place to love and serve each other through the specific gifts that the Lord has given you. You are all uniquely made and gifted only by what God has given us. Check this out. In Corinthians 12, it says this, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. This makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. If one starts to suffer, this is beautiful. If someone in this room is suffering, we suffer with them. All parts suffer. And if one part is honored, all parts are glad. When others celebrate in this room, we celebrate with them without being jealous, without coveting. Way to go. It changes everything. The gospel changes everything in the way we think. This particular passage is referring to our individual God-given gifts, yet Paul is clear that these gifts are only to benefit the collective community. Otherwise, if we try to live our our Christ-likeness without love 
or, individ- or, or if we live it for individual gain, we become a clanging symbol. Paul even says that we gain nothing when we live a selfish life. And even if we try to live in community and we are not yielding to a higher authority, namely Jesus, then we're just a clanging symbol. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I give all I possess to the poor, I'm the most giving person on earth. And I give my body over to hardship that I may boast. Look at how sacrificial I am. But do not have love. I gain nothing. Because it's about him. Gospel-centered community, last one, is sanctifying. Having to live in close proximity to each other will be challenging. And here's the deal. God will ask us to live in community with others around us that don't look like us, don't think like us, don't move like us. He puts us in community with people that are different for us for our good. This is good for us. It's good for our souls to extend grace, to be quick to forgive, to learn to listen and not speak. We learn to truly love each other because we have to love others that are different from us. Ephesians 4 says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. Now these are the types of gospel-centered communities that I believe God has designed us for as the body of Christ. Where spiritual gifts are, learned, are, are, are given to us to serve and love each other. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see the sacrificial, patient, joy-loving, food-eating, Bible-craving, beautiful family come to life. I get to see it all the time through you guys. This is the best job I've ever had. Because I get to hang out with you. It's a blast. I'm never leaving, so you can't have my job. I'm right here. They're going to have to wheel me out. It's going to be the weirdest day, but it's going to happen. So what are examples of what this community looks like? This gospel-centered community here at Melanie Park Church. What I'm going to do is break down the big to small really quickly, Sunday morning worship, what we're looking at right now. This is beautiful. The singing, and I've heard Todd say this. I've heard Brian say this. When you're standing or sitting in the front row and you guys are singing, there is an awe to his worship that I cannot explain. It doesn't happen at home. When I sing, I sounded like one of those kids. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> I just got the dirty eye. What? Oh, she's like, you're right, you're right, you're right. So what can you do on Sunday mornings? Show up. Be consistent. Don't let the internal and external distractions like Will's taught us keep us away. Be steadfast, immovable, excelling in all good works. I don't do that on my own. I do that because I submit. I'm an isolated, selfish, self-destructive machine. But as I submit to a good God... He says, go see your friends on Sunday. Sing my praises. So show up. 
Find a place to serve. Our website or the QR code in your um, bulletin or it's on the welcome desk out there. Find a place to serve. Be a coffee brewer. Get on the welcome team. Uh, get on the worship team. These three are awesome. Youth ministry, Tim team, which you heard about this morning. Is that not an incredible ministry? Children's ministry. This is the thing. Those aren't isolated ministries. Those are church-related ministries. All of us should be involved in raising up the next generation. Now, that may look differently to lots of people. That's okay. But on, as, a, as a part of this body, serve. One of the greatest ones was that adventure camp. You saw volunteers needed. We need adults to come in and raise up the next generation. So if you have some time during that week, check your calendars. Take a day off. Just come serve those kids. It is a blast. It's, you will get so much more out of it than they will. What about during the week? We have worship nights. We have Bible studies. We try to provide avenues for people to interact with each other to see the gospel grow. We have regen, women's and men's ministries. Get involved. Get connected with other women. Get connected with other guys. We love you. We want to walk with you in freedom as you remind me to walk in freedom. We have new home groups starting up. If you're not part of a small group, that's the greatest way that we know for life on life, gospel-changing relationships. So if you're not in a small group, get involved in one. And please hear me. This is not a message about do more. We're encouraging you to a life-giving culture. If it's not within your rhythms right now, it's probably hard in your life. So he reorients us. In the bottom of your uh, bulletin as well is a place to hit the QR code if you have interest in or are not connected in a small group. Let us help you get connected. So big to small, the smallest one, one one-on-one discipleship. Now, I've spoken to two different people this week that have both said that when they started allowing the Lord to dictate their time and schedule, remember, it's not our time anyway, it's His. After they said they were truly releasing their, their time to His plans, each one of them said, And these two people don't know each other, but each one of them said that God clearly brought people into their lives to disciple one-on-one, groups of three or four. And both of these people, and they're dear friends of mine, both of these people said these are the most fulfilling times in their life right now as they invest in others. See, in a gospel-soaked relationship, our time's not our time. Our money's not our money. Our goals aren't our goals. It's all his Always has been, always will be. So just as a quick aside, though, there may be a group of people in here that are like, listen, Jeff, listen, I've been walking in gospel community a long time. I got this. Whenever we say, I've got this, <laughs> trouble's coming. The Bible says pride, becomes, pride comes before the fall. None of us have this. None of us. We don't have it figured out. If any of you say that, again, let's sit down and I'll give you my testimony and then we'll talk about why that's probably a bad thing. But there may be a group that says, 
I've, I've, I've got this. Here are some indicators, real quick, some indicators that if you're getting too comfortable in the community, we're almost done. Number one, not willing to be honest or vulnerable with each other. That's a great sign that you're walking in comfortable or complacent community. Think about your prayer list. Is the prayer that your community's praying for, is it pretty surface level? Somebody's cat? <laughs> I just made it matter. The needs that really matter. And I'm not saying some of those surface things don't matter. The needs of our people are vast and beautiful. But are we praying for marriages? Are we praying for our lost friends? Are we praying for the, the things of this earth that are so broken that, that only, only, only a good God can step in? What's our prayer list look like? Here's another one. That we see blatant sin and we start to rationalize or justify it, even in our own group. I love that person, so I'm just not going to say anything. You're not loving that person. We can, we can gently restore each other. Restore a brother gently. We can gently restore each other. And it's loving to tell someone the truth about the gospel, even if it may hurt their feelings. It's okay. But we've got to do that. If we're walking in a complacent community, we don't. Third one is we stop inviting people into our community. We start to become a holy huddle. One of the most beautiful things I've seen about Melanie Park since I've been here, every Sunday I walk into somebody new. I'm like, where'd you come from? Every Sunday, someone's inviting someone. That means that God's Spirit is moving and beautiful. And we're not complacent, but we have a tendency to be, all of us. So we've got to watch it. The last one is that uh, my desire to pursue and trust and follow Jesus be- starts to become cold. That would be a good indication that we're not walking in biblical, gospel-centered community. Let others speak truths into our lives. Fan the flames of what's already there. So how do we combat this comfortable community? Real quick, we pray, we return to the gospel, we call out the complacency, and we ask God to move in our hearts from selfish comfort to dependent service. That's how we combat complacent community. We all need the gospel daily. So as I close this morning, I want to make sure that this is clear. This wasn't a message about how to have a better small group. Or that we just need to do better as a community. The encouragement this morning is simple. Pursue Jesus. Submit to him. And that looks and feels different from, for everyone in here. Love others the way he loved us. God's word, God's people, with God's spirit. That's a God-honoring life. It wasn't an event that happened 2,000 years ago that changed the course of history. It wasn't a community that started saving souls around them. It was him. It was Jesus that happened, not an event. Now, I came across this article that I think sums up this reality. This article referenced, this is such a cool deal. This article. This article referenced a practicing psychologist and a graduate student from Columbia University that presented their research. This is so much fun. 
their findings on the study that they completed with 11 symphony orchestras across the U.S. One part of their study was to see how, this is wild, how each orchestral section perceived the other sections. How the percussionists see the brass. <laughs> I was like, well, this is interesting. Uh, this is a little participatory, participatory for you guys. Who are my music people in the room? And that you've just, not, not that you just had music, you just love music now. If you're in elementary, if you're in middle school, if you were in high school, if you're in college and you had some sort of musical background, choral, band, all right, raise your hands, raise your hands. Yeah, most people, so I think you'll get this. And you'll see yourselves in it too. All right, here's what, here's what the research found. You ready? Each orchestral section saw the other sections like this. The percussionist, they were seen as insensitive, <laughs> unintelligent, hard of hearing, hard of hearing. <laughs> I got Josiah and Joe down here right now. I know. I feel you, brothers. Yet fun-loving. Doesn't that describe percussionists? Where are my percussionists? Yeah, awesome, awesome. All right. String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and I love this, unathletic. <laughs> that is beautiful. So where are my string players? That don't stand up. Yeah, you'll fall down. It's <laughs> research, baby, research. <laughs> the orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective for brass. Yes. Where are my brass players? Woot, woot. <laughs> so. Woodwind players seem to be held <laughs> in the highest esteem. <laughs> Described as quiet, meticulous, though a bit egotistical. So <laughs> where, are my, where are my woodwind players? Yeah, you arrogant. <laughs> you arrogant stinkers. Someone thought to ask the researchers, though, and I think this was wise, with all these personality differences, how in the world do orchestras produce and perform such amazing musical arrangement? Great question. The reply was simple. In an orchestra, no matter what everyone's differences are, each member is subordinate to the conductor. The conductor picks the music, teaches the different parts, brings a unified vision to the musical piece. If one section decides to do whatever they want, the whole piece falls apart. Only when each section, each individual, no matter what their differences are, follows the guiding direction of the conductor, does the full beauty of the arrangement come to life. So you see, we have all kinds of personalities sitting right in here. The sensitive, the insensitive. The fun-loving, the arrogant, the sweet, the grumpy, the meticulous, the scattered, the hopeful, and the anxious. Yet God, in all his wisdom and goodness, called us together, Melanie Park Church, for such a time as this, in a world that is scattered and broken. They see pockets of life walking around, that eat together, that pray together, that sing together, that love together, 
I walk in one of those communities with you guys on Sundays. And I walk with one of those communities on Sunday nights. My, our home group, our, it's life-giving. It's not perfect. We're goofy. We're unathletic. <laughs> we sure do love each other. For such a time as this, to walk in beautiful arrangement of, with him and with each other. Because community doesn't save anyone. It's all about him. He is the king of kings. The king of kings. And he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Sometimes this is overwhelming, Jesus. I know you saved me. And I'm grateful, God, that you don't leave us here to fend for ourselves. You intimately walk with us. You sent your, your son Jesus so, you, so we can know you, so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so, God, thank you. Thank you for my loving family. I can only stand up here with the power of your spirit, but I also know I'm loved, Lord, in all my goofiness. I'm still loved because you first loved us. So, Lord, thanks. So as we finish to today, Lord, may we rise up and worship to you. And as we do, Lord, drive us towards those that you know need love. Help us love each other well. Help us sacrifice and serve to your name and your glory. Father, we pray this in the wonderful and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.